0: Good morning. morning. The Olympics are coming up. I don't really know when. And we don't have cable anymore, and so I'm a little bit of a panic here. But um, I love all of those stories, and I cry at every single one. You know, those background stories of so-and-so overcome all of this to make it here. And I found this one story this week about Clarissa Shields. 17-year-old in 2012, the first woman ever, she makes complete history here, the first woman ever to win an Olympic gold in women's boxing, because it was the first time women's boxing was around in the Olympics. 17-year-old girl wins the Olympic gold. She says, I just remember being on the podium, and I'm like, holy This medal is huge. It's not that bad, but Jason might not want me to say it. This medal is huge, she told me last month, and it was so heavy. And when he put it on, I just held it, and I looked, and I thought, I was about to go crazy. She's 17. I wanted to go jump up and down and run around the ring and jump on the ropes and put my hands in the air holding the medal, just just shaking and laughing. It was like someone handed me a million dollars and said, Here you go. She is so excited. I mean, can you imagine winning Olympic gold? And then, the Olympics are over, and she goes home. She goes home to Flint, Michigan, which is one of the toughest, most dangerous cities in the nation. She has no Wheaties contract, she has no Nike sponsorship, because nobody really knows what to do with a woman boxer. It's not exactly like our gymnasts that we're used to. She goes home to a mother struggling with addiction. She goes home to an older brother who's in jail. What on earth does the reality of being an Olympic gold medalist have to do with her everyday life as a junior in high school? These are two completely different worlds and how on earth is this 17-year-old girl going to bring them together? Last week, Jason gave this really awesome message about resurrection obsession. And I would not be offended at all if you missed it and you stuck in your iPod, and your little ears, and listened to his message right now instead of mine. It was awesome. He talked about resurrection obsession. This is what we are about the kingdom, the resurrection, what that means. And I came away like all pumped and excited, and then I went home. What on earth does this awesome, exciting obsession of the resurrection, of kingdom, have to do with our everyday lives? How do we bring in that reality to our lives today? And that is what we are going to look at in Philippians today. In Philippians chapter 4 beginning with verse 2. Now keep in mind that Paul is writing to a small fledgling church in a secular world. Christianity is a brand new thing They're figuring out what does it mean to live Christianly? What does it mean to be different from the people around us? And they're getting pushback about this. And they are trying to figure out what does this kingdom reality mean to us now? We get to verse 2. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the world, in the Lord. How... Do you bring this kingdom reality into our lives? Now, this little church was struggling because they were starting to have these divisions. Euodia and Syntyche were these two leaders, these two women who were leaders in the church. It is very odd for Paul to actually call people out by name. Normally, when he addresses issues in the pro- in the church, he kind of says... Hey, you guys need to deal with that person over there who's doing this. You guys need to deal with this person over there who's struggling with this. But in this case, he goes directly to the leaders and he calls them out by name. This is not because they're especially bad. In fact, it's the opposite. It's kind of a marker of how much he loves this church and how much he loves these leaders and how much he trusts them. And his it's a compliment on their maturity, that they can handle this, that they can be called out like this. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. A better word for this is to have the same mind. Throughout all of this letter, Paul has been talking about fellowship and partnership, having the same mind. Remember way back Jason's first sermon in Philippians, and he talked about Paul's love for these people because they had this partnership in the gospel. They were working together with him. They were supporting him. They had this common support. And then, turn with me, we're just going to go back just a couple of pages to uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. This is Paul's prayer for the Philippians. This is what he wants for them. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. It is my prayer that you guys have this mutual affection, that whatever you have now, it will grow, that you will be unified. They will have this common love, this common support, this common affection. "...with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ." So that they have this common goal of doing the gospel work, of being one in Christ. And now, as we come to the end of the letter, we start to see some specifics of how this is falling apart for the Philippians. There are two leaders who have a disagreement. Paul doesn't say what the disagreement is. We don't know if it's personal or if it's more like how to do ministry. I mean, for all we know, they were having worship wars over there. Yodia wanted this Jewish music over here and Syntyche said, no, we need more contemporary Greek music. (laughs) And it's all out war. We don't really know what it is. We do know that it's not a heretical issue, that it's not something that infringes on the gospel message itself because Paul, for all of his whatever, he is not afraid to talk about those and to call out issues and to take sides, but he does not take a side here. In fact, he beseeches each of them you, Euodia, it is really hard to continue saying that name, and you, Syntyche, you guys both are responsible for this. You guys both have to pull it together. You guys both have to work for this unity. And how do you do it? By having the same mind in the Lord. He's used this phrase over and over. In fact, usually when these letters would come, They would stand up and read the entire letter, and they would have picked up on these repeating phrases. You and I, we've been studying it over weeks, and so we don't necessarily pick up on the repetitions. But they would have gone, same mind, ah, Back in chapter 2, well, they wouldn't have said back in chapter 2 because it wasn't marked that way, but they would, have, they would have remembered that it was just said in chapter 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, all of these things being together, being unified, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love. And he talks about do nothing out of rivalry or conceit. Do everything in humility. Don't do anything out of selfish ambition. In fact, verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is, in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. How do we achieve unity when things separate us? The same mind in, in Christ. Having the same mind that Christ had. This is our king. He is the one who did this who led the way. This is not a sameness that comes from one person or a group of people dictating, this is how we're all going to look and act, and everybody needs to conform to this. This is not even a democracy where it's like, okay, well, the majority kind of want to do it this way, and all of you other minorities, you need to just you know, follow along for the good of the people. This is putting aside your own desires, your own agenda, your own ambitions, your own comforts to seek the good of the other person. And he's saying, Euodia and Syntyche, it is time for you guys as leaders to step up and do this. Just as Christ led the way, you guys need to lead the way and do this. You know... One of the things that kind of stinks about preaching is God tends to work on me whatever I have to preach. I don't know how Jason preaches that often. He just must be a really holy person. (laughs) Because this is hard stuff. It is much easier to say, yeah, I definitely know how Dave needs to set aside his selfish ambitions and put the needs of others. I can say Dave because that's half of the church and all of the daves and all of the daves in here are the most selfless people i know so it absolutely doesn't apply but it is much easier for us to see my spouse definitely needs to start putting me first or that person over there needs to start putting me first my kids when they fight you know it's the typical he started it no she started it did he meet, hit me first and here's what i do with them to make up they have to lie down we actually had to do this this morning lie down on their stomachs on the floor, a completely equal and vulnerable place for both of them. And then they have to do nose kisses. I'm not saying you guys have to do that literally. <laughs> Although that could be a fun exercise. But it's, it usually starts out with one of them lying down way over here, and the other one lying facing a completely different direction over here. Oh, make him move to me. No, make her move to me. And no, you both have to move. And they inch their way, and they inch their way, and they inch their way, and they inch their way until finally they're together. And they give nose kisses, and by that time, it's gone from fights to giggles. We are called to get on our stomachs and inch toward the other person in a very vulnerable and intimate place, to have the same mind, to put aside our ambitions, our agendas, what, how we want to see church being done, how we want to see our lives going, how, our own comforts to serve each other. There are so many things that separate us. There are so many realities in our lives that can get in the way And we as a church are called to be different from the world in this way, to put each other first. And it's both in the local church with our preferences of of worship or how we want to see things being done or, or, or feeling slighted when we're overlooked, holding grudges about things. There are so many things in relationships that get in the way that we are called to overcome. But even broader than that, let's open it up to the universal church, the big C church. All of the things that tend to get in the way of this Christian unity that we are called to. Politics, economics, where we stand economically, hobbies even, our preferences in just how we live our lives. There are so many things that we allow to tear us as Christians apart? And do we really look different from the world in how we approach these things? But this is what we are called to. This is how our king led. He led in full submission to God, giving up his rights, giving up everything to to be crucified, executed, killed for us. He gave up everything. This is the king who washed the feet of those who would betray him and deny him and abandon him. And that is the type of lives we are called to in order to have this kind of unity. In verse 3, it says, yes, I ask you also, true companion. This is somebody in the church. We don't know who it is. the church knew who it was it could have been um, Luke who there's some evidence that he stayed around in the church in Philippians it could have been Lydia remember Lydia um, when we were studying Acts it could have been somebody somebody who was also a leader in the church help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers you know that's that Oscar moment the mic is going down the music is playing you know and everybody else out there thank you all whose names are in the book of life. We are also called to support one another in this work. Maybe you don't personally have a fight, a a grudge. Maybe you don't feel like you personally feel separated from things, but you and you and you and me, we are all called to support each other in this too. This is part of our work. There's been so much division in our nation, and it is affecting our churches. And I saw this one beautiful moment on CNN after the um, Dallas police shootings. There was a Black Lives Matter protest. And across the street, there was a counter protest. And between the two groups were police to protect these two groups. And then I saw something beautiful. I saw leaders from each of these groups come together and cross the street and meet in the middle and pray. And they prayed together. And some of the cops who were there joined them and prayed with them. And it was a beautiful moment. And no, that didn't fix everything, but it was a moment that gave me hope that said, there are people who can come together, who can pray together, who can hug one another, who can see each other as people. This is who we are called to be, to walk across the street and pray with each other. How do we do this very, very, very hard thing of getting on the floor for nose kisses, of walking across the street, despite all of our differences and all of our ways of doing things, verse four rejoice in the Lord always again, I say, rejoice. Paul brings back that finish line obsession that he had that we talked about last week, and rejoice in the Lord is not. When you feel like having this good feeling, it's a command. In these next verses, Paul is going to talk about what is common to the Christian life. What is characteristic of the Christian life. And here we have a command, rejoice in the Lord. This is not a Pollyanna, just be happy, nothing else matters. Guys, you are at a disadvantage because girls kind of get... The laughter through tears thing guys don't really get that they're either you're laughing or you're crying I don't get it why is there both but girls we do the <laughs> thing very well and it's kind of a little bit like that you have you have this tragedy throughout this whole letter Paul has been talking about joy in the midst of suffering joy this mutual joy together in the midst of hardship You do have suffering. We can't deny that. This church, this Philippians church, because of who they were, because they could no longer really participate in all of the festivities that celebrated Caesar as their Lord and Savior, they were pushed to the margins of society. Their businesses were suffering because they were losing clients. People didn't want to buy from these Christians. Who are they? They don't even think our Caesar is Lord. We could get in trouble if we start to hang around them. They're suffering financially. They're suffering socially. Some of them are starting to experience some verbal and even physical abuse. And yet, rejoice in the Lord. Why? Because we have resurrection coming. We know what's coming and this rejoicing is not just I do this and you do this over there it's something we have together this is our commonality this is where our unity comes from it's from this thing we have together this resurrection obsession I went to a birthday party last weekend and there was dancing and it reminded me a little bit like weddings dancing because you have, okay, so at weddings, you have the bride and the groom and all of their friends, the young group, and then you have the parents and their friends, the old group. And one of the things, well, this at this birthday party, it was the old group were the old people, the, the birthday people, and then their kids and some of their... <laughs> And their kids and cousins and friends and all were the young group. And when I went home that night, I kind of went, when did I cross over from being the young group to the old group? (laughs) Chris, I think, was smart enough not to really answer that question. And so you would have some songs, like The Hustle. Losing my hair thing. Where the old people would come out. And then you would have some songs... Amy, help me out. It's the pistachio one. Yeah, that one. Where the young people would come out. But here's what I loved. When you would have... There were two songs in particular that just... Everybody comes out. It didn't matter if you were the old group or the young whippersnappers. You were all out there dancing, and everybody knew the words, and it was awesome. That's kind of what the church is. This rejoicing in the Lord is when everybody just comes together, and we all dance because this is what we are. This is who we are. We rejoice in the Lord because we have this same kingdom obsession. And then... Standing together or dancing together, this is what we can do as a unified group. Verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. That word reasonableness, probably a better word for it is forbearance because it has the idea of not taking everything to the letter of the law, not forcing the issue, not suing everybody basically. I deserve this and I expect this, this is what the law says I should have, this is what my right is, and I demand it. Your forbearance is saying, I don't demand it. I'm letting it go. It's okay. We do that together with each other. We have this forbearance with each other. And then, together as a unit, we can do this to the world. These Philippians had every right to go to their neighbors and be like, excuse me, are you taking your business elsewhere? Have I done something wrong? But together as a unit, they could stand and they could say, it's okay, God's got this. We trust him. Our hope is in this moment, in that dance, when resurrection comes. And that is how the church should be known by everyone of saying, we trust God. He's got this. It's okay. The Lord is at hand. He's coming back. He's returning. And he will set things right. And we can trust that. Verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, Paul is so unequivocal in his language. Let your forbearance be known to all men. Be anxious about nothing, nothing. You don't have to worry. You don't have to worry about your rights or what's due you. You don't have to worry about, well, I want to make sure everybody knows that my reputation is correct, that I'm right in this matter. You don't even have to worry. I want to make sure that Christ's glory is not infringed upon because, trust me, Christ will take care of his own glory. Every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess, and we don't have to worry about it. We don't have to worry about our financial situation. We don't have to worry about what's going to happen to our kids when they grow up. The world is going to Hades in a handbasket. It always has been since the fall. God is in control, and he will return, and he will set things right, and we can stand together. We have a common end A common joy and we also have a common posture of trust in everything by prayer and supplication this is how we do it through prayer with Thanksgiving understanding that God is the giver of everything and that we are the created beings with Thanksgiving let your requests be known to God let your forbearance be known to others you don't have to take your demands to them Let your requests be known to God because you can take everything to God. You don't have to make other people take care of everything because God will, and he does, and he will. And what is the result? When we do this, when we have this posture, this common posture together as a unified body, When we have this trust, this full submission, this kind of submission that marked our king that we now have, what is the result? Chapter, sorry, verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, a lot of times we hear this verse, And we think about this feeling of tranquility that I can have in the midst of a storm. And that's certainly true. But I think there's more going on here in the context of the disunity and the division that was threatening this church. As this church was getting attacked and trying to figure out Christian life, there's some grumbling, there's some division. But when we decide to have that kingdom obsession, that others-centered living, when we decide to instead of grumble about my things but serve others and live in unity, God gives us peace with one another. That peace with one another is a foretaste of the kingdom of the resurrection that is bringing kingdom life here that mutual love that unity and that love and that peace it comes from our sovereign sovereign God it surpasses understanding because the world works in a way of saying, I demand this, and when I'm recognized for things, when I get what I am due, when I have the position that I'm looking for, when I have all of this, that's when I feel good about my life. They don't understand this when we say, no, this is what we're looking for, is this unity, is giving up of ourselves for each other. It will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Okay, this word guard. Remember how Jason told us that um, Philippi was where all of these ex-Roman soldiers came. So here we have a metaphor of guarding, of a military guarding. This peace that we have with one another is standing guard, keeping watch over our thinking and our doing. When it talks about hearts, it's talking about our will, our desires. And when it talks about this word, your minds, it's, the word here for minds is really about your thinking. So how we theologically think about things and see the world and how we act in this world, that is guarded by this unity we have. Because when we are a unified group, when we truly learn to listen to one another, have compassion for one another, and do things together, that is when we, are, we more fully see God and act out who he is in this world as the body of Christ. And then we come to verse 8. Finally, brothers, whew, finally, finally, this word is, yes, in conclusion, coming to the end. But it's also this idea of culmination. And finally, remember in way back in the beginning, my prayer is that you will love one another more and more so that you will have knowledge and discernment and you will understand who Christ is and you will be filled with righteousness. Finally, my brothers, now we can get to it. Now we can see whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. This word think is more of a um, examine, understand, work out, as a unified body, then we can turn to the world and understand God's intention for it and God's plan for it. Chris and I were out of town this week. Chris was one place and I took the kids somewhere else and Friday night, about within five minutes of each other, we all got home and this, it was chaos. It was just mass chaos. You know, the kids run in and they just kind of drop their books and pillows right there at the door. And I'm trying to make my way in with a couple of things before I send Chris back out to the car to unload everything. And then it's, you know, it's already after dinner time. Everybody's starving, Marvin, and it's trying to get the food ready. And it's the house. It is a disaster. Stuff is just everywhere. If you saw my house right now, you would not think whatever is true, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, except for the people in it. I kind of feel like that's how the church is sometimes. We look out and we just see disaster and strife and it's just the messiness of it. And we don't even know how to make our way. We don't even know what do I do? How do I, how do I act in this? What do I do with this? What do I even know? What is true? What is pure? What is lovely in this world? What is just? What is right? How am I supposed to vote? How am I supposed to interact with my neighbor? How am I supposed to do this? Paul finally gets to, do you want to know how to understand and see the loveliness of this world? As a unified group, working together, praying together, serving one another, then you can start to see what is true, what is lovely. Then, as this group together, we can see this is what God intended for the world, this is what God is doing, and this is what God will do. This is how we can participate. I know this by experience. I know this because I go out in the world and I just, I feel so overwhelmed sometimes. I feel so much like I want to fix everything and I can't. There's so many hurting people, there's so much out there and I want to do it all and I get lost in it a little bit. I I feel stuck sometimes, like I, I don't know what to do. I don't know I don't know what side to take in this argument. I don't know where I'm supposed to go. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. But I can tell you this much. When I come together with you guys on Sunday mornings or when I come together sometimes with just a few of you over dinner <coughs> or coffee or something I see a little bit of it. I see some of that loveliness. I see some of that beauty making. I start to understand, here's what I can do. Here's how I can participate. And it's just a small thing. It's not necessarily, I'm going to go out and fix the world, because, you know, that's God's job. My job is not to fix the world. My job is to participate in his justice-making, beauty-creating, redeeming work. And I find little ways that I can do it, When I'm with you guys, when I'm praying with you and talking with you, that's how we work out what we can do in this world and how we can participate. And that's why this unity is so important. That's why we have to say, you know, I can cross the street and be friends with somebody that's a different political stance, a different economic place. I can cross I can cross the street and be friends with somebody who is just I don't even know how they think that way. <laughs> because we have the same mind in Christ. We have the same goal in the resurrection. We have the same hope. When all else fails oops wrong thing. When all else fails Verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. When all else fails, just do what Paul did. It's kind of a standard thing. And we can do that because Paul followed Christ. We can, we can mimic and imitate Paul because here is was a man who turned his back on everything that defined him before, on all the status, recognition, everything he had gained, he turned his back on it to find his identity in the people of God, in Christians. We can follow him, we can do what he did, because here is a man who, like Christ, pursued gospel work to the end That he was imprisoned and persecuted. When all else fails, we can do what Paul did. Clarissa Shields felt a little bit lost when she went back into her world. She felt a little bit like, she felt a little abandoned, I think, because she didn't have any sponsors like everybody else who won gold medals did. She felt alone She felt a little hopeless, what does this mean for my life? But then she started training for these next Olympics. And she decided, this time, it's not just about getting a gold medal. This time, it's to get my family into a place that's more lovely and just. This time, it's to show people who I can be, and what this can mean for other women who feel stuck and abandoned and lost. We do this hard work because our king did it and because he is still working in the world today. Will you pray with me? Father, please help us to do this hard thing of setting aside our rights, our desires, our comforts, what we want from life in order to serve others around us, in order to listen and befriend and lift others up. Please help us to focus on the common joy and hope that we have in you, knowing that someday you will return You will put everything to right. We can stand together now. Help us to stand together now, knowing that we will stand together with you for eternity. Amen.